Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sex. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I know we've been focusing on the crazy and there's more than a little of that. And I know that everybody is uh, focused also on the, on the Biden-Putin summit, which we will get to later in the week. But I wanted to talk about uh, a fascinating piece that appeared in Time magazine a couple of weeks ago, the great reopening about the changing workforce and our attitudes towards jobs and then maybe the this historic uh, inflection point we reached in work, the workplace and the way the workplace is structured. And it was written by Joanne Littman, who's an American journalist and author, served as chief editor of USA Today, the USA Today Network, uh, Condé Nast, the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Journal. And she's the author of the book, uh, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know About Working Together. And she joins us on the podcast today, Joanne. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Charlie, it's great to be here. Well, you and I know each other because we served together on the Knight Commission on Restoring Faith in Democracy. And what what was the title of it? Uh, (laughs) uh, The Commission on Trust, Media and Democracy and issued a report, Renewing Trust in America. And we didn't pull it off, really, did we? <laughs> not quite. Not quite. I, I, You know, we tried. Um, there was a lot of good effort there. But, you know, frankly, Charlie, don't you think we kind of suffered from a lack of imagination about just how bad it could get? You know, I think that's exactly right, because I was thinking about it. And, you know, we I, I think there was a sense that, you know, America is in crisis and the media is in crisis. And what are we going to do about it? But I don't think we realized how bad it was going to get or how rapidly things were going to get, you know, how, how badly things were going to devolve. So it feels like, well, like a lot of commissions issuing reports um, didn't actually solve the problem, unfortunately, as if we expected it would. Um, but it was an interesting discussion, and to, to to kind of set up the the strange world that we live in, and the and how rapid the changes. So before we get into the workplace, can I play you two sound bites, which, which which seem relevant for what you and I were working on on that commission about disinformation, misinformation, um, and 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 how to counter it and how to restore trust. Because, um, you know, here we are, and I, I put out my newsletter today, two more reasons why we need a January 6th commission. And I want to play for you a, a short soundbite from a Donald Trump's new spokesperson. He's sitting down in Mar-a-Lago, and he's named a new spokesperson named Liz Harrington. And Liz Harrington on her is, as far as I can tell, first day on the job, sits down with former lawyer, fabulous uh, disinformation purveyor, Jenna Ellis. Remember Jenna Ellis from yeah. the, the, the big lie, the big steal? She sits down with her and she talks about the Arizona audit and then refers to, and I, I want you to focus on this, how she refers to January 6th, the insurrection, as a peaceful protest. Another indication of how fast the right is retconning what happened on January 6th. So this is the Trump, uh, the, the former president of the United States' new spokesperson, Liz Harrington. Oh, absolutely. And again, we've seen it. There's such a void. I mean, you're, you're not going to get it from the Biden regime because everyone knows he's not actually running things. And it's so important at this time in our country. I mean, we have no equal justice under the law right now at the federal level. I mean, just look at what they're doing with the Justice Department. You know, they didn't look into any of these irregularities. Oh, no, that's not the federal government's role, right? That's the state's role. And then all of a sudden, here comes a forensic audit 
uh, authorized by the Constitution, and here comes Cyber the corrupt ninjas. Justice Department. Corrupt. I mean, and we're talking about peaceful protests. You oh, had oh, January oh. 6th. They opened the doors of the Capitol, oh, which yeah. is supposed to be, I mean, we've both been there. It's not an easy building to get into when you know there's that many people. They opened the doors and people walked through. Obviously, we're not condoning Tur- you know, breaking property or violence, but some people just got just walked in. And now they're being kept in for misdemeanors in some political jail. And what is happening here? What what about the people that burned down St. John's Church? Yeah, just uh, just a reminder of five, at least five people died uh, during that uh, that 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 riot. Uh, Dozens of police officers were injured, some of them very severely. And St. John's Church did not actually burn down. Other than that, Joanne, I mean, it's uh, the the you know, we've heard of revisionist history before, but I guess I never imagined it would happen this quickly or this brazenly. You know, I, Charlie, one of the things that, that this really reminds us of is just how tenuous this relationship is. First of all, how, how tenuous is democracy, but also the role of the press, the role of the free press and the, you know, weighing free speech versus uh damaging lies. And I think, you know, I'm actually going to be teaching this. I'm teaching at Yale in the fall, a seminar on the media and democracy to look exactly at these issues. I think this is a, we're in a, we're in a place where this country certainly in our lifetimes has never been before. No, they haven't. And now, I mean, that was bad. You know, Liz Harrington being the spokesperson for Donald Trump. But this next soundbite I want to play is actually even worse because tens of millions of people are going to believe this stuff. And this is Tucker Carlson going where he has actually not gone before, um, where he's pushing a conspiracy theory, basically floating this really out there conspiracy theory that the FBI that FBI operatives organized the January 6th insurrection I just want to play this I mean look this is this is this takes January 6th denialism to a whole different level that basically suggesting that the insurrection was a false flag operation orchestrated by the FBI so this is the kind of stuff that maybe we would have thought we would hear on Alex Jones on InfoWars, but now it's the top-rated host on Fox News. This is Tucker Carlson last night. We know that the government is hiding the identity of many law enforcement officers who were present at the Capitol on January 6th, not just the one who killed Ashley Babbitt. According to the government's own court filings, those law enforcement officers participated in the riot, sometimes in violent ways. We know that because without fail, the government has thrown the book at most people who are present in the Capitol on January 6th. There was a nationwide dragnet to find them, and many of them are still in solitary confinement tonight. But strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. Look at the documents. The government calls those people unindicted co-conspirators. What does that mean? Well, it means that in potentially every single case, they were FBI (laughs) operatives. Really? In the Capitol on January 6th. Really? Really? See, Joanne, the thing that I don't think we ever figured out on the commission was how do you counter a tsunami of disinformation, particularly when you have these alternative reality silos and you have these huge megaphones? I I, I don't know that anybody has really come up with a solution. Your thoughts? Yeah. You know, Charlie, at the time during the commission, which was several years ago, the primary focus for misinformation and disinformation was foreign actors, not domestic. And I think that's the big difference in 
where we are today, where the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation is all through, um, you know, largely through domestic actors and also has been amplified by those foreign actors who are clearly, you know, this is, this is great for them, right? They can just, you know, take information that is grown here and, um, and amplify it. So yeah, yeah, I think we're, well, you're um, gonna, I, I think you're literally going to see that later today when Vladimir Putin's going to come out and he's going to recycle some of the conspiracy theories about uh, January 6th. Uh, he'll, he might even talk about Ashley Babbitt uh, and talk about the United States uh, suppressing political speech. So it, it's a, it, it is interesting how this loop has worked that Vladimir Putin will now um, you know, magnify some of the disinformation that has been spread from the fever swamps to the right wing media. And the key, I think, now is how do we get back as a country to a place where we can all agree on facts? Um, yeah. Yeah, right. We're right now. Everyone creates their own set of facts. Um, and we've got to get back to to there. There is a truth out there. There is there is actually when you look at the Capitol, for example, at January 6th. We all saw it with our own eyes. There, it's really right. not open to interpretation. But that, but how do you see? That's it. I I just don't see how how we get back, how we break this fever anytime soon. You know, particularly when there are people who just want their own truth. I mean, it's not like they're 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 victims. I mean, they're increasingly, I think you have a lot of Americans that want the media to be a safe space for them. That want them to confirm all of their priors, and as long and. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but there are a lot of people who, frankly, don't care whether they, you know, they're being lied to or whether the information, as long as it's, if, if you start thinking of information purely as ammunition and as forms of your personal identity and your ties to your tribe, then fact checks are never going to make any difference at all. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, I'm not sure people are saying, yes, they're lying to me and I don't care. I, I, what I do think, though, is that people are siloed, their information sources are siloed. So they're only hearing information from, you know, the source that they agree with that agrees with them. And it confirms and reconfirms their belief system. But I also think a lot of what we've seen, it's really, uh, as you mentioned, it's tribalism, it's, it's cultural, right? These are my people, and I'm going to stand with my people. It's almost like, um, a team, right? Like I'm Yankees and maybe you're Boston Red Sox and we are diehard members of those tribes, right? Well, that, and, yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of what's going on, because there are people who are not at all political, who have been drawn into this polarized world, who in the past and hopefully in the future, uh, were not sort of, you know, diehard, dogmatic um, believers in things that are not true, uh, but but simply identify with with that tribe. No, I, I think that's right. Well, now, I wanted to talk to you about what I wanted to talk to you about, which was your uh, fantastic piece in Time Magazine. And here's the paragraph that, that I read. I'm going to read you your own stuff um, yeah. that made me think, I have to have Joanne Littman on this podcast. You're talking about uh, the the fact that, you know, we are about to have this great reopening of American, you know, the, the American workplace. Um, and people are realizing that the workplace doesn't work and it's our chance to reinvent it. Now, normally when I I hear that. I, I, I'll tell you what my, my gut sense is that I, that sounds like a buzzword to me, except in this particular case, 
I think you've put your finger on what was really a transformational moment. So here's the paragraph. As the post-pandemic great reopening unfolds, millions of others are also reassessing their relationship to their jobs. The modern office was created after World War II on a military model, strict hierarchies, created by men for men with an assumption that there is a wife to handle duties at home. But after years of gradual change in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, there is a growing realization the model is broken. Millions of people have spent the past year reevaluating their priorities. How much time do they want to spend in an office? Where do they want to live if they can work remotely? Do they want to switch careers? For many, this has become a moment to literally redefine what is work. And then you say more fundamentally, the pandemic has masked a deep unhappiness that a startling number of Americans have with, I'm actually reading from the, the hard copy here, with the workplace. And then you, you cite these numbers that 66% of people without jobs who want to change careers, according to Pew, 81% proportion of professionals, a Harvard Business School survey said would prefer a hybrid work schedule. So let's just talk about this and, and break this down because it does seem like we are having a mass reevaluation of our relationship to work with profound implications for just the way Americans, particularly the middle class, lives its life. Absolutely. I mean, go back to that the the first part of that that you mentioned from from my article, which was where it does the modern office originate. Well, it goes back again to World War II when you know the guys are coming home from the front and they're recreating this very hierarchical um, office where uh, it's of course it's space time. You're there. It's nine to five. It's five days a week, and there's a wife at home who's handling all the you know, non-work duties for you. Um, fast forward, okay, here we are, it's 70 years later, and the entire, all the work that we do has changed, right? Knowledge work, computer work, technology, everything has changed, and yet that old-fashioned workplace scenario is still, that model is still in existence. And so I think that what the pandemic did is finally give people a little bit of that space to say, wait a second, this makes no sense. This makes, if we were starting the workplace from scratch today, do you think there's any way we would create what we have now, five days a week, nine to five, you know, face to face, in person all the time? I don't think there's a chance in hell that that's what we would create from scratch at a time when business is increasingly global, it, when you have technology that enables remote work, and also at a time when we already work with people who are in different time zones. Uh, so we already have sort of staggered hours. So I do think that it's given us a chance to sort of reset. And by the way, I should also mention, we're talking about a privileged class of worker here. We're right. talking about the, the knowledge worker, the professional, the office worker. Um, we're not talking about the people who actually were hurt the most in the pandemic which are those who have to show up for hourly jobs, you know, your delivery people, your grocery clerks, um, who have an entirely different set of, of issues that they're dealing with. And, and one of the things that the pandemic did as well is really throw into very sharp relief that exactly. class divide between those two types of jobs. Very dramatic. So you quote a, a professor from Texas A&M saying that making the prediction that the great resignation is coming referring to the fact that millions of white-collar professionals and office workers 
appear poised to jump. So what is the great resignation? It's not just quitting their jobs, is it? No, no. So first of all, there's the piece of it that's quitting their jobs. And we just saw with the Bureau of Labor Statistics figures that just came out um, that the quit rate was um, at perhaps the highest in recorded history. It was, it, was, it, it spiked, right? The quit rate, which is the number of people who quit their jobs. Um, but I was particularly struck by that Pew survey of the unemployed people that you referenced, where 66% of them said they want to switch careers. Now that to me is really, really, really significant and and also has been sort of underreported in that what it what it shows is there's this deep, deep, deep unhappiness with the way the workplace is structured. There is sort of a reset in our thinking about what we care about at work. Like you know, those people who I spoke to, you know, people who have quit their jobs or lost their jobs and had to kind of rethink what are they doing, they Virtually every one of them talked about having a better life balance, but they also talked about having work that is meaningful to them. And and particularly as we get into tighter labor market, you hear you know some of the organizations that are having trouble um, hiring. Uh, as we get into a tight labor market and people have choices, I do think we're going to see a real, real change because people will have the option to say this is an unsatisfying career. I want to look for something that's more meaningful um, and that I feel more fulfilled with. This is what makes this so interesting is that it's not just an employment issue. What you're describing is really this mass sort of existential moment where people are asking themselves, what is important to me? What is my life about? What do I want my life to be about? And they've had a year to think about this and reevaluate all of those things. And it's playing out it happens to be most graphically then playing out in this employment story, isn't it? I mean, it does seem like this runs deeper than simply what job you have. It is a kind of a, it, it turns out that the pandemic was a year of philosophical reflection about the meaning of life, wasn't it? Yes, that's actually <laughs> exactly right, Charlie. I mean, you, you, you're 100% right when you talk about this as an existential moment, because it was, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm working on a book uh, that this feeds into on the art and science of reinvention. When you talk to academics who talk about things like reinvention in careers or reinvention, you know, people who bounce back after trauma, I mean, every different specialty, whether you're talking to neuroscience or psychologists or management gurus, they all talk about the importance of having, it's like an in-between period a liminal period, a, a period of, of, of deep thought and struggle before you move from your previous life to your next step. It, across all these disciplines, they see this. And, and, and what ended up happening with the pandemic is the entire world, this was forced upon us, mm -hmm. right? We had a year of isolation, of time to reflect, and it really has changed the way people think. I, I think the curious thing will be is, how long will this last, right? We know that, uh, you know, New York just reopened, California just reopened, and people are going crazy and they're out there hugging and <laughs> out mm -hmm. drinking in restaurants and hugging. Um, but uh, so, you know, that looks like we're going to sort of go back and people are going back to travel. Will we go back with work or is this sort of a permanent change where we're finally saying this makes no sense? And by the way, I hope the one thing that we do talk about also is, is women and families because oh, I was gonna get to the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that's where we really need to see significant systemic change. 
Well, uh, yes, and I do want to talk about that. But this, this, uh, uh, you know, work home balance has always been tricky. And as you point out, the pandemic has basically obliterated the line. And I want to talk about the impact on women. But in terms of families, I mean, I know a number of uh, dads who have been able in the last year to be much, much more involved in raising their kids, have a different relationship with their children than they had before. And it's uh, it's certainly conceivable that, that that is going to be enduring, uh, that that's going to be a change. But let's do talk about that. Um, I mean, one of the things about this shutdown is that it has been particularly devastating for women, as you point in, you know, throwing into high relief just how inhospitable and precarious the workplace can be for caretakers faced with the impossible task of handling the majority of childcare and homeschooling, 4.2 million dropped out of the labor force from February 2020 to April 2020, and nearly 2 million still have not returned. I mean, that really was one of the dramatic impacts of the entire shutdown. Talk oh, yes, absolutely. So what the shutdown did, and if there is any good impact from a year of devastation and disease, um, that that we could say, okay, let's let's you know learn from that um, and learn going forward. It is it has shown to us just how unequal the workforce is for women, and basically, actually, for anyone who is caring for children, elderly relatives at home who has that juggle and. The U.S. is the only um, industrialized country in the world that does not have guaranteed federal family leave. It doesn't have um, any kind of child care benefit, um, you know, uh, preschool guaranteed. Uh, pretty much every other industrialized country in the world supports families in a way that we do not. Again, it goes back to that old fashioned workplace where you're assuming there's a wife who's at home who's taking care of all of that. Well, we saw that with homeschooling, you know, women, um, despite lots of gains by men and husbands, <clears throat> women, and of course, single parents, uh, the, the vast majority of homeschooling and childcare fell on them. And it became impossible for a lot of women in particular, to be able to balance that with a with a full-time job. Um, we are now, we have set back women's participation in the workforce by more than three decades. We are back mm. to 1988 in terms of participation. And it's so frustrating because when you think about it, women at the beginning of last year were actually the majority of the workforce. Women have the majority of college degrees, the majority of graduate degrees. They're more highly educated. They want to work. Um, in many cases, they have to work, but they also want to work. And they're being boxed out of the workforce. And it just shows you how unequal it is. One of the things about this hybrid workforce, Charlie, that I think is um, really concerning is when you see executives uh, like Jamie Dimon um, in finance, like the the finance guys who are coming out and saying, "Oh, you got to come back to the office because you know that's you're not serious if you don't." I mean, Jamie Dimon said, "If you're gonna hustle, you know, people who want to hustle, you have to be there in person." Um, uh, San Sandeep Mithrani, who runs WeWork, said, "Only the least engaged employees are the ones who are going to want to work remotely." Hmm. Uh, 
what that does is it X's out an entire, like half your population basically says, yeah, we don't really think you're serious. We don't care about you. I mean, honestly, tech and finance are the, the, have been the least hospitable for women, finance in particular. And for the finance guys to say, you have to show up and be here on site is basically saying, yeah, we've been inhospitable to women and caretakers and we don't care. We don't want you. Um, I you think know, it's going to damage them at the end of the day. Well, it's also an interesting, uh, you know, cultural divide because my experience has been that yes, some people who want to work remotely are less engaged, but that a lot of the people that I know are find that they can be much, much more productive when they're not in the office dealing with it, and they're they are just as engaged and they're able to do their jobs at a very, very high level. So, how much of this, though, the phenomenon for men and women has to do with the fact that that having experienced the this you know this remote w- working uh, being around the family having more control over their their time not having to commute not having to uh, get dressed up every single day not necessarily having to shave every day um are just thinking i don't want to go back to that i just have decided that i don't want to go back to work right. because i've enjoyed i mean you know you're, you're talking about people who are boxed out but there are a lot of people just choosing like okay i've experienced this it's thrown into highlight, you know, high relief, how much they didn't like to go back into the workplace. Absolutely. I, I think there's a reason why the vast majority of people, men and women, right, the vast majority of people, as you cited, are looking for a hybrid workplace. Um, and a hybrid, I actually do think makes some sense, right? Because the point that to you, you want to know your colleagues, you, there's a lot to be said for being on site and having the serendipity of bumping into people, knowing your colleagues, developing those relationships, but also the serendipity of coming up with great ideas because you run into somebody at the elevator from a different department and you start chatting and it just, you know, ideas start bubbling up. I mean, as a, you know, long time news person, I will tell you, I love being in a newsroom for that very reason. I just love sort of the mix and match and the serendipitous kind of ideas that flow. I think that's very, very important. And also culture is really, really important. At the same time, do you need five days a week to do that? Probably not. Um, You know, a lot of people are sort of leaning toward at this point, kind of a three day in the office, two day at home, um, which actually sounds great. I I think the, the trick honestly is going to be the balance because, um, when you talk to sort of management types, the real concern is sort of with the middle management layer. Dealing with a totally remote workforce is actually easier than dealing with a hybrid remote workforce. How do you ensure that people that you can that that you can have sort of the the uh, that you don't create a two class system, right? Where people in the on the premises are the ones who get the attention and the promotions and the training and the mentoring and people who are hybrid are sort of second class citizens right that's a that's a real real risk um, you know there's also a risk by the way a different kind of risk where let's say your managers are the ones because they have more money and they live in the suburbs and they don't want to commute and they have families they could be the ones who want to work remotely and then you've got your young people who are, you know, three or four of them squeezed in with their roommates in a tiny apartment, they want to go to the office. Um, Again, you could have a a, a mismatch of where you've got the young people there, but the people who need to mentor them are not. So dealing with that 
is going to be very, very, very tricky. I mean, a hybrid workplace, I think, is we if we get it right, I believe would be the way to go. It, but it's going to be very, very hard to get it right. Yeah, not everybody's going to get it right, obviously. So you point out in the article, I mean, you, you say we have an unprecedented opportunity right now to reinvent, to create workplace culture almost from scratch. Now, that's a tall order. And obviously, you're talking about scrapping the, you know, dumping the nine to five, five day work week. Um, you know, it depends what, what the job categories are. As you mentioned before, there are four day work weeks. But what does it mean to create workplace culture almost from scratch? That, that would be very intimidating, I think, to a lot of managers who, uh, you know, that's not what they signed up for necessarily. That's right. That's right. It is not what they signed up for, nor is it what their leaders signed up for. But we're all being thrust in sort of these unfamiliar roles. I mean, look, the the CEOs, by the way, did not sign up for being social justice warriors, but that's what their employees want them to be right now. (laughs) Right. Right. Employees who want them to be active with Black Lives Matter and and with eliminating racism and sexism. Um, And uh, so they're not accustomed to that either. But when, when it comes to kind of, you know, thinking about how do we create a more equitable workplace, let's, we can be a little more imaginative and creative and, and also listen to everybody, not just have a committee of the, you know, senior executives um, who are all, you know, middle-aged people with families, um, but have, have uh, input from everyone. So, so for example, one thing I throw out there, which I would love to see is, we now have an excess of office space. A lot of companies are subletting their office space. It's at pretty much an all-time high. It's up something like 40% over the last two years. Um, why not? You know, If you're going to be a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs and demand that your people be back, why don't you take some of that office space and turn it into daycare, right? <laughs> like, Why don't you, in conjunction with saying we want you back in the office, also offer ways to make it easier for you to come back? to the office. Um, I think there's a, a, you know, another element here is what are the benefits and the perks? That would be one, obviously, but what are the benefits and the perks that actually make sense for people? So the past decade, two decades, it's, it's been all about the tech firms that are offering free meals and dry cleaning, um, you know, those sorts of on-site things, which of course now employees realize were actually just a way to keep them at work for right. more hours and they never have to leave. Um, whereas now the demand is, that's rising up that we're seeing is for things like mental health um, support. Um, you know, there's a number of companies now that are doing these recharge days, right? Where they close down the whole company for a day or a few days. Um, because the idea being people aren't taking their vacations. Americans tend not to take their vacation days. So here we're going to kind of ensure that we're giving everybody a break. Um, you know, there's, uh, again, for families, for, and, and not just for people who have kids or elderly relatives, just for anyone who has a life, who has outside interests outside of work, give people more flexibility. Um, those are the sorts of benefits that I think are going to be much more desirable um, as we go forward. And it's a it's a really cool thing to think about. Now we have this chance to say, okay, what makes sense? What can create a more humane work environment? And by the way, our work-life balance has gotten totally out of whack. You know, as you mentioned, you know, the line between work and life was blurring. And now it's like obliterated with people who work at home. Um, 
But now we have a chance to reset that as well and say, how do we create something that has more balance? And we have the tools to do it. See, this also seems to be an imperative for business if they want to compete for workers, right? There's now a marketplace and workers are looking for different things. So if you want to recruit people, um, you know, even in the te- you know tech and height and, and, and finance areas, they're, they're going to have to say, okay um, – I have to convince someone to come to work for my company, um, which requires you to work nine to five, you know, six days a week, whatever, or or nine to ten o'clock at night, you know, with no work life balance. Versus companies that are offering the kind of flexibility you're you're describing. So th- there's going to be competition in that marketplace as well, which is going to push this kind of transformation you're going to be talking that you are talking about and describing here. A hundred percent. And also employees have more power than they did before. And part of it is a function of the tight labor market. But part of it is just a cultural shift where, again, we've seen employees who are saying, you know, uh, we want you to support the, the social issues we care about. We want you to support gun t- control or do something about gun violence. Like the employees are... Um, not afraid to speak up. I think younger employees are feeling empowered in a way that people who came into the workforce when you or I came into the workforce uh, are, are, you know, I don't think we felt that that we could push our bosses into changing the company culture or changing, you know, or, or, or taking a stand on these sort of external political or social issues. Um, so there is a cultural shift there was something very interesting. We see it with younger employees. The question will be, well, as the younger employees age, as they get married and have kids and have more, have mortgages, will they stay as sort of activist as they are now? But they are activists and they are making themselves heard. And they say, you know, in, when you look at surveys, they say, you know, I would quit a job that makes me um, come in, you know, five days a week. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the no. particularly younger employees feel quite empowered. So it'll be interesting to see if that moves the needle. Now, you you acknowledge in in the article in in Time Magazine, though, and we've been talking mainly about um, office workers um, and and really you know, you know people who are relatively privileged in terms of education. You point out the stark divide between white collar workers and those with hourly on site jobs. People like grocery clerks, bus drivers, delivery people. Uh, these these uh, this stark divide has become painfully visible during the pandemic. During the pandemic, nearly half of all employees with advanced degrees were working remotely, while more than ninety percent of those with high school diplomas or less had to show up in person. So let's talk about the people who have to show up in person who don't have this. There, I like I interesting getting your thoughts on the pressure to get people to come back to work because one of the issues of course is um people with a lot of these hourly jobs the employers are complaining that they are not able to find employees a lot of people do not want to go back to those jobs and as a result um they are pushing wages higher uh, it's very interesting to me you know when you roll up to a fast food restaurant to see the signs you know help one and all of the benefits they are offering they're not just offering you know 10 to 15 dollars an hour wages they're offering 401ks they're offering free tuition, guaranteed vacations. Um, this is also a transformation. Uh, it, it's a kind of a different transformation, but give me your thoughts about why people have been so slow to come back to those jobs. Is, yeah. it, just, is it just the unemployment comp? Is it just the fact that they can make more money sitting at home? 
Yeah, I, you know, I mean, there's some thought that people who are, um, you know, getting their guaranteed $300, it makes more sense for them to not work. But I also think that, um, we haven't, there, there's, there's also a school of thought and there's some research that suggests that that's not the case at all. Um, that the issue remains, um, the millions of women who can't work, right. Who are disproportionately in those jobs, the women disproportionately take up the, the, those, those hourly uh, or lower wage jobs. Um, and so they're still boxed out because they still can't afford childcare, um, at those wages. So there's that piece of it. There is, um, uh, I, I also think there's, there's a mismatch just sort of in our income distribution across the board. You know, we often talk about how decades ago, somebody who was earning a minimum wage actually could live on it. You can't do that any longer. You, you'll, you'll, you're generally, in most cases, you're still going to be living in poverty. So at the poverty level. So we, we really need to kind of rethink how are we paying people and the benefits we're giving them. And, and I do think there's something to be said for giving people a living wage, which everyone should be able to get a living wage and benefits, um, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think we've got to adjust um, at, at that end of the scale. And then at the top end, at the other end of the scale, when you look at sort of every year, you know, the, the CEO, they, there's these calculations about what percentage, um, does the CEO earn versus an average employee in their company. And every year, these astronomical figures, 200 times, 300 times that every year, these, these figures go up. And so we've got to think about sort of just a more equitable society. And that means that people who are at the minimum wage and at, at lower income levels should still, if you work 40 hours a week, you should be able to support your family and not live at the poverty line. Well, and also, you know, a labor shortage that results in higher wages is exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. It's supply meets demand. Um, I was struck by, you know, the complaints by some Republican organizations and by the Federalist about the fact that, you know, um, when one writer wrote about her, Chipotle Bowl just got more expensive. It's the federal government's fault because uh, Chipotle has had to raise the has to raise their 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 wages, and as a result, um, raise the price of their food by four percent, or actually um, raise the price. Of, of her Chipotle bowl uh, by 15 cents, $7.60 to $7.75. And this breaks her heart. This is terrible. It's like, wait, um, th- this strikes me as um, a, this is the way the system is supposed to work. I mean, I get the, the, the complaints about the unemployment compensation, but are higher wages a bad thing? And this is kind of strange hearing people complain about all of this because they don't get, you know, as cheap fast food. But when you're talking about 15 cent increase in your Chipotle bowl, really, people, is it really come down to that? Because this is the future. If you want people to come back to these jobs, I think you're going to have to pay them a living wage but also some of these lifestyle benefits that you've been describing. It will be different for those jobs that you have to show up at. But they're in the same world because this existential crisis isn't just hitting white-collar workers. I mean, that, right. that's, what, that's what makes this not strictly a business-slash-economic question. If people are saying, how do I want to spend my life? What is the meaning of my life? Then this really does put a burden on employers, 
uh, to meet the workers and potential workers where they are right now. And that's a very interesting place. That's exactly right. It's a supply and demand. This is the way that the system is actually supposed to work, right? If there's more demand for your services, then you get to charge more. And it actually is, it's, it, it's a sign that things are working correctly. That existential crisis that, that affects everybody is also a really great point, Charlie. I, there was one of the people I spoke to for the article um, was a restaurant worker. And he decided, you know what, it's a fine job, but um, I want more out of my life. I want something more meaningful. And he had grown up on a farm and he's now started a landscaping company. And so mm-hmm. he's gone into business for himself. So, you know, it's not just a, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, it's certainly not just a matter of people who are getting their $300 unemployment benefit, not get, sitting at home. What it is, is this existential crisis. It's this, it's this rethink about, what kind of work do I want to do? What am I suited for? How do I see my life uh, playing out? And and people saying, you know what, I am going to 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 go for something that's that's more meaningful. You know, since we're talking about this, it it, it occurs to me that not just we, we didn't just have this year timeout where we had time to think about things. We had a year timeout because we were faced with this pandemic death. And, you know, speaking of existential crises, you know, it, it is that moment where you do have to confront uh, the possibility of death and disease. And, you know, that may not play in for everybody, but it's certainly one of the factors that we're sitting at home, not able to go out because this this plague is stalking the land. And, you know, traditionally, this is when people begin to think about questions like meaning of life, right, when they're confronted with these things. So that's exactly right. It's it's, you know, we're getting deep look, here. We're getting we're getting we're getting profound here. Just, but but it is true that you know, people who are confronted, let's say, with a serious illness often right. rethink, right? You you think about what are your should. priorities? What do you really care about? And we had an entire nation, entire world, world. that was in that position. Um, so the, one of the other things that we all experienced during the pandemic, and I'll, I'll, I'll just drop, I'll pop this on you, um, jo- jo- Joanne, is that we all rediscovered the joys of binging on television. <laughs> and the, the the thing that I get the most reaction to all around the world, because we we have listeners in Australia and Britain and everything, is uh, that we have talked about the shows that we have been watching. Um, and I'm leading up to a particular point here. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm into these these British these new British uh, cop shows, murder mysteries, uh, Broadchurch, Hinterland, um, uh, Shetland, uh, Line of mm-hmm. Duty. Do you have any favorites that you wanted to recommend to the audience? So we've been watching um, uh, Hacks, which is oh, hysterical, yeah. with Gene Smart, who is just brilliant, the most unappreciated comic actress out there. Highly recommended. The, the other thing we did during the pandemic, which um, my husband and I, who generally in the before times worked very, very long hours, so watched very little TV. We watched, because I'd never watched it before, The Sopranos, which was- oh, I have never great. gotten around to watching that. You did that. I've <laughs> thought about that. We did all that. Sopranos, and it was awesome. Um, and then the one other that we did that everybody else had watched already was Schitt's Creek, which was also delightful. I guess I have not watched it, but I have a friend who has watched that. So the this is the, uh, I had two highlights of my week this week. Number one, of course, was my son getting his MBA from, you know, from from Northwestern. That that obviously was number one. But number two was this. 
because, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, that I am totally addicted to this British show, Line of Duty, which is about anti-corruption investigators in this British police department. And it's too intense for my wife. She, she'll watch, she watched Broadchurch and Hinterland and Shetland with me, but Line of Duty, way too intense. Just, just at, at a different pace, a little bit more, a little bit more violent. But here's the... Here's the kicker on this. And I, I keep talking to her about it. And she's like getting tired of me, you know, saying, I, you know, I, I watch these things and I think about it. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm trying to figure out what is the moral dilemma this person is facing. Is this person a good person or a bad person considering <laughs> some of the things they've done? I mean, it really, I mean, I find myself just sitting there and we, we, we can't really talk about it. Except I can bore her with it or I bore the listeners of this podcast with it. But uh, over the weekend, the Sunday Times. Um, reporting on the royal family, reported this. The Sunday Times reports that Her Majesty, the Queen of England, has been watching British cop show Line of Duty huh. and, and discussing it with the master of her household, Vice Admiral Sir Tony Johnston Burt. The police procedural has become a massive hit in the UK despite famously hard-to-follow storylines. See, uh, Johnston Burt, 63, has been in charge of HMS Bubble, the hand-picked group of some 20 staff who've been on a revolving basis serving the Queen at Windsor Castle during the pandemic. A royal source told the Sunday Times the Queen was very into line of duty and enjoyed discussing the plot lines with Tony. That's awesome. So you can, so you can imagine <laughs> I walked into my wife and I said, you know what? You know what? This show I've been watching, I'm watching it and the Queen is watching it. We have the same things. So last the night I was, watching, <laughs> I was watching one of the episodes and it ended in an incredibly intense, violent way. And I thought, you know what? I, I, gotta, I can't watch two. I can only watch one. I need to absorb that one. And then I thought, you know, if the Queen of England in her 90s can take it, <laughs> I can take it too. So the queen, queen, queen and I watching the same show. I had to mention that, Joanne, even though it has nothing to do with anything. So uh, I think that's pretty awesome. Um, be, you know, you and the queen that's together. It. That, that's it. A, a, something that I bring up on a regular basis um, <laughs> to anyone who will, will listen. Joanne Littman, again, thank you so much for joining me. Um, the cover story is in Time Magazine. Uh, it is uh, the great reopening with the picture will return on the cover. And uh, Joanne is the author of That's What She Said. She's a former editor in chief of USA Today. Her next book is on the art and science of reinvention, which seems awfully timely based on our conversation today. Joanne, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be here. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark podcast today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>